Welcome to the More You Know podcast, brought to you by More Talk TV. I'm your host, Alfred Tardell, and we have a special guest this evening, Ebony Harris. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. You have a podcast yourself also. I do, I do. It's called Black Millennials Invest, and we essentially are providing resources for millennials to get better financial stability, uh, financial planning, estate planning, you know, um, there's a lot of young black professionals out here who are just looking for the guidance on how to get started in the real estate industry. And one of my big premises is that it's difficult enough to get the information but to have to pay for information that might not even be relevant to you or might not even be what you're actually needing to get started, it, you know, you end up at a dead end. So I started the podcast so that we could freely talk about generational wealth building um, and actually provide some solid tools for the people of my generation. Awesome. Well, look, you're the perfect person to have this conversation with, all right? Um we were having a discussion off the record about uh, slavery. And it is my understanding that there are two forms of slavery we suffer from right now. And that's mental slavery and economic slavery. So let's title this podcast um, Self-Governance all right, uh, and Wealth Building. I like All that. Right. I like okay. That. That okay. Sounds, that sounds like black power right there. It's it's self governance and wealth building. Self governance and wealth building. This Absolutely. is true. So I have, I'm I'm gonna just say a few words, and I want you to tell me what what comes to mind. Okay, All right. Plymouth Rock. Malcolm X said, "We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us." And what comes to mind immediately is, you know, our black brothers and sisters standing on the podium, not realizing that 400 years was about to supersede all their efforts for years. And and it all started there. I mean, it started before there. It started on the boat. It started with the betrayal. It started with surprises. And, you know, I think of the very beginning of our suffering and the very anger that that was in their veins that's still trickling into us today. All right. I got another one for you. They came before Columbus, Dr. Ivan Van Sertum. <laughs> well, we all know Columbus was a myth, was one big uh, fairy tale that, that white historians decided to jot down. Uh, but absolutely, I mean, black people have seen every continent before anyone ever decided to start traveling anywhere before they ever had the tools, you know, when there was still uh, Pangea, that our b- black people were traversing the earth and, and making ne- historical civilizations all over, the, all over the globe. I mean, doing incredible things, creating texts and histories and numbers that we still use today. <laughs> Which brings me to the next term, doctrine of discovery of discovery. Wow, this is a new one for me, I will admit, but I'll say, you know, just from the contextual clues, I'm thinking 
we discovered everything, but they wrote it down, and so boom, there's history. <laughs> that's that's kind of where I'm going with that one. All right. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, his story, her story, our story. Well, the doctrine of discovery is about pope, about a pope, all right, from Rome, um, who basically put out a papal bull or an edict. And this was right around the time of 1492, during the last Moor stronghold in Spain, Granada, which you are very familiar of. I have been, yet to travel I've there, been, but you yes, have. I've been, I've seen the walls, I've seen the castles. They are a sight to be home. Yes. And so this, this edict, what it did was it provided for all of the Christian powers or explorers who were having expeditions to what was called the New World yes. to conquer and seize or possess lands where the natives did not convert to Christianity. Right. And so um, that actually still exists to this day. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you've seen in Spain since we're on Doctrine of Discovery because a lot of people haven't traveled to Spain, I included myself. Right. What was some of the things you've seen? or? Well, you know, it's funny that you ask and that you bring it up because what, during my travels in Spain, I, I doctored a blog called Atlas Vision, and it's still online today. It was a part of my senior project in college, so if anyone wants to read up on those experiences from the days when I was in them, I'll tell you the writing is not that great. <laughs> in college. But um, I wrote about the whitewashing of our history and how in the architecture, in the ground, in the air, you can see how it was once a more stronghold. And it was once a city vibrant with diversity because you had Euro Europeans from the north coming in through to trade. You had the merchants from Africa coming in to sell their goods. And you had this rich culture of arts and education and it's still there intact today wow and it's painful to see it you know littered if not destroyed with white supremacy and uh or you know white insanity is what i prefer to refer to it as but you know and uh and years of, of destruction you know and years of washing out uh the war that, that spain barely won the war that, that drove them into years of poverty. The war that they, they struggled so much economically from because the Moors taught and built everything. And it's still there. And I think that is what really stood out to me. Uh, in Spain is where I saw the first Black Madonna statue. And it is the Mother Mary holding the baby Jesus, all gold encrusted, all absolutely, you know, adorned in diamonds at the top of a cathedral, and it's black. Wow, I I, I got I gotta admit, um, I've known you for some time, and um, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. But the last time, you know, we reacquainted ourselves. I got a chance to speak with you a little bit more in depth. Now, I've already had such this um, understanding about our Moorish ancestry, and I've been trying to get away from um, the customary usage of black. And so whenever I would meet people and they would utilize the term black or identify themselves as black, 
I had a tendency of throwing out the baby with the bath water. But after speaking with you, and this is why it's important to never judge a book by its cover. After speaking with you, it's not so much that an individual actually is solely identifying themselves by black. It is a social construct that they've sort of been accustomed and adopted. But that doesn't mean that they don't hold near and dear in their heart about their ancestry. And you you really opened my eyes up to that. And so I want to I want to give you a big shout out and an accolade. <laughs> I appreciate that. But you know, it, it's so interesting because I think we talk a lot about the division within the black community and how it stems from, you know, how different black people identify and different kinds of black that there are, you know, and it comes with the diaspora, it comes more in you know, a wealth gap issue, and, and it comes in so many different ways, but when we talk about the African-American experience or someone whose lineage is from American slavery, then, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding about our process of reclaiming our ancestral identity. And when we do start to seek those things out, I think it's always a desire for Black Americans to learn more about their history. And I think that there comes this crippling kind of fear or um, just lack of hope when it comes to the more you dig, the less you find, you know? And, and it, it becomes very difficult to deal with. And then a lot of Black people just chalk it up to, well, they destroyed it and it's gone and that's it. And, and I think, you know, then they start to try and adopt new identities. That's, you know, the gang culture. That's uh, even Greek life, even, um, you know, the Moors or the, uh, um, you know, people who are new age witches, they say they're witches, they uh, practice, you know, African um, spiritual beliefs or they'll, you know, there's different um, ways that African American people start to seek out their ancestral identity and start to form their own communities around fragmented history that they put together. So you'll see this wave of black people at a certain age, you know, rejecting Christianity. And then you'll see that wave of uh, black people at a certain age rejecting religion altogether. You'll see a wave of black men specifically converting to Islam. You know, it's, it's a fragmented process of putting together their histories and you know and from different perspectives of or levels so to speak of history digging other people start to look at other people like oh well you haven't done the research or you haven't read or you don't really know or you know you're still brainwashed or you know what I mean and we tend to dismiss one another um, and, and, and vice versa we, we tend to dismiss one another one another in the reverse you know people who are really living in maybe possibly an impoverished black state or even those in an extremely religious black state I know there's a lot of Christians who are still very uh, Trump supporters or very um, uh, traditional Christians who need to be in church on Sunday every day and repenting and pray, what you know and that's still a that's still a culture and 
you know, they will tend to look at someone else, someone with, you know, long dreadlocks who refuses to cut their hair and they are very specific about how they identify and say, oh, you, you doing that over there, or you doing that over there, you know what I mean? They, they will dismiss it in the same way. I think we do it to each other. And I think that all of it is really just a process of us trying to understand our lineage and understand our ancestry and understand where we can be safely rooted in a history that is rich because we know we have one but we just don't always get to see it in our daily lives wow so it's the process it's the process, it's the process. I, I will remember that i will mm -hmm. remember that that's a lesson they say you learn something every day and i tell you that was a lesson that i've certainly learned um well, it was a you know open the perspective on that i'm glad and look, it was a process for me. Right. I, I, listen, I was raised and I grew up and I also used the terminology mm -hmm. black and I identified a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I sought out, as you say, you know, hey, what is my history and my ancestry? And, you know, and I started to embrace it. So it's just a matter of the process for everyone. They have their individual pace, you know. Exactly. So being a woman mm -hmm. of the mindset of economic wealth, yeah. um, I have another name for you. Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was, you know, revolutionary for our community. And he encouraged education. He encouraged black people to learn the things that were not being readily taught to us, you know? and. That in itself, just the emphasis of education and self-education is so imperative to our community because without it, I mean, regardless, we wouldn't even be having these conversations. It goes right back to the quest for ancestry. It's, that's not education you're going to get from anybody who intends to oppress you. That's it. So, you know, his legacy of, you know, pursuing the black knowledge was just, pivotal for so many generations of black people. And that as a whole lifts us over generation, over generation, over generation, you know? So, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about his economic structure. Mm -hmm. Would you say that his economic structure was one of the largest and greatest for our people? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's all about you know, building ownership and maintaining your businesses in spite of the attacks from people. You know, this system, as we say regularly, is not built for us. It's not made for us, and we are not able to play by its rules. And you know, this year, 2020, has been an eye-opener for so many people because I think there were so many black people who had started to build wealth, who had started to follow some of those ideologies and really implement them in their own practices and teach them to their families and start to, you know, instill the, the mission of generational wealth, of buying your stores, providing for your own economy, circulating the black dollar, you know, we've been trying to instill those things, but people can become so easily discouraged trying to use this white system. They have to do it the way it's intended for black people. We have to be unified, and we have to invest together. We have to work together. We have to circulate the black dollar. We have to, we have to be unified. That's the key, you know. So, yeah, it's something that still works. <laughs> Let's talk about that dollar for our community. There was a few days or a weeks, couple or maybe two weeks ago. So, there was um, 
I guess it was a, an initiative about um, it said buy uh, don't buy or, or blackout. Oh, it was a blackout, blackout yes, right? Was spending, that Tuesday? Not money away institutions, yes. So I, I think we briefly touched on that, and um, I had a different opinion about keeping a dollar in the pocket. I thought um, it would have been better to delegate or designate where the dollar should go. Yeah. You know, um, and there's been several opportunities to do that. One, we know the Million Man March. You know, I think that was a, a good opportunity to say, let's designate the dollar to a specific location. Okay, so what we're gonna do here is not use that. We're gonna use this. That happened to me last time. And welcome back to the More You Know podcast brought to you by More Talk TV. I'm your host, Alfred Tardell, and we're here with Ebony Harris. And we're picking up right where we left off at. We're discussing Marcus Garvey and the dollar for our community. So, the dollar, right? The, the, the Tuesday was a Tuesday, uh, the blackout. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought, in my opinion, the dollar should have been designated to go somewhere right, like specific. Large, right, right. You know, perhaps it could have. Right. All of these are different platforms or forms that basically have the they they act almost as the voice of the people, mm -hmm. and they can also influence mm -hmm. our people to right. do or not do something. Right. You know. So what 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 might what might have been your opinion or what might you have influenced individuals to do had you had that platform what would you have suggested they do with the dollar well you know i see both sides of this i see that that our institutions need funding and that is that's at its core i mean there are so many hbcus and there are so many um, very successful alumni from HBCUs, and it needs to be more of a practice the way that you know predominantly white institutions are performing, where they have graduates and they have very strong graduate chapters who are constantly donating to big projects on these campuses and big efforts that these campuses are organizing. And I think that. Black universities are some of the most underutilized resource for the black community. And just now you're starting to see this wave of athletes start to commit more to black universities. And this is something that I think is a great starting point to, to drive black unity forward. You know, the blackout, and I'm gonna to get to specifically what I think about the blackout, but I think it needs to be a two-pronged process. I'm not saying that that it's not right that somebody should send all their dollars to one organization. I do think that that needs to occur, but I think it needs to occur the way we used to, and I think there's been a shift in this, but the way we used to, and some still do, support churches. So churches get 10% of your income because you willingly are attached to the church and you are investing in the church. There are churches you get on auto pay and you've been paying 10% to the church in tithing all your life. And those are funds that should be going to an uh, institution that's actually able to impact the community. Colleges are able to host political agendas. They're able to host uh, political com uh, com conferences and convenings. They're able to really impact our um, political agenda and our economic agenda. Now, 
That's one side. On a blackout Tuesday in a time where the country is rioting, I absolutely think that on a grand scale, everyone should omit sponsorship of any white institution. And I think in saying something so grand, it's easily applicable to everyone. And you know, having a strategic plan where we're investing as a unit into different organizations and institutions is something that needs to occur. But in, a, in an emergency situation where we're trying to rally the support of every black person like it was Obama's next election, we need something that is simple, clear cut, and easy to follow. Don't go to Walmart, do find a black business to buy whatever your needs are, and don't spend any money at a white place, whatever you do. And that's easy to do. And that's easy when me and my mom get up in the morning, we say, okay, we need to go to Lowe's, we need to go to Walmart, we need to go to Wawa. First step on the march, we're gonna go find a black coffee shop so I can skip Wawa. Then I'm gonna go find a black hardware store so I can skip Lowe's. And if that means I gotta separate the needs, maybe I needed a screwdriver and a paintbrush and I gotta find a black hardware store. And then I also need a refrigerator and a dryer and I gotta now go find a black appliance store. And maybe it would have been more convenient to just go to Lowe's. That's the kind of sacrifice we need black people making all over the country. That's when we're gonna start seeing the impact, right? And so it's an easily followable task to say, just don't spend your money anywhere you know is white. If you know it's white, don't spend your money. If you can't figure out if it's white, they got a black manager, you're not sure if it's white, don't spend your money there. Don't spend your money where white people own because they do not care about you. And those businesses have power, okay? So the most important thing is gonna be the overall unity of the black people, okay? So we do need to unify and say, Everybody who graduated from these organizations or institutions needs to now set up a payment plan to a, a move forward our black political agenda 2020 now. Like the census, send out mailers. Everybody get on a payment plan to send 5% of your pay every two weeks to a black institution. You can write it off as charity and we will be moving these political agendas forward. That's the, all the HBCUs. That's an easy plan. Um, HBCU went over my head. Explain what that is. Historically black college and university. All right. Okay. So you've got Texas A&M. You've got uh, Grambling, Grambling State University. You've got the greats, Howard University, Hampton University, Spelman College. You've got Morehouse College. There are tons of extremely um, respected and accredited universities and ecosystems of black people because that's what universities create ecosystems so you've got a university then you've got university graduates you've got now law degrees you've got now doctor degrees you've got now doctors and lawyers who are going to live in this proximity to this university so it's not difficult to say hey everybody in your university town if this is a black university is probably black i don't know if you've ever been to um the fourth ward of Texas, they got TSU, there is only black people for surrounding five miles, wow. you know? And you can see when you enter a black town and the problem is those are usually the red lines. And that'll bring me to my property conversation. Wow, wow. <laughs> I mean, when I think of Texas, I, you know, I've, I, the most I've ever, I know about Texas is when I drove through Texas. 
um, and that it's a big state, the Lone Star, right? But um, I, I, I mean, besides knowing Beyonce, you know, is you from know. Texas, right? Mm-hmm. I really didn't know we had a lot of us folks, you know, oh, in yeah. Texas, you oh, know. Yeah. But it's something I'm, I'm starting to. And this is the thing, you know, every state that was a major slave state has a huge black population. Us in the north, we tend to think, oh, well, everybody lives up north, and really there's only a couple of people down there living on farms left over who have decided to stay. Maybe they still own the land. That's not the case. There are huge communities. We think, and when we, we live here, and we live in this kind of New York City, major city bubble, we've got DC, Philly, New York, all right here. There's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of booming, all of this, and everything we hear on the news is about white people acting crazy in the Midwest mm-hmm. and the South. We don't really tend to think of what the black ecosystems are outside of maybe Atlanta, right? But the thing is, there are black communities all over this country that are thriving, that are thriving. They're not on the news. They don't have press teams saying, oh, our babies graduated from college this week and our babies are doing this and we all went to the football game and they're they're not advertising those things but they do have the financial capability. This is why when we say we got buying power, we got buying power. Yes, we do. We have serious property buying mm-hmm. power, business buying power. You know, I work for an all black firm in New York City and all my clients are all black clients. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking small dollars, we're talking billion dollar projects for the city of New York. Wow. And that's not, you know, that's not rare. There's the same group of people in Chicago. There's the same group of people in LA. Same group of people in St. Louis. We have immense buying power. What we lack is strategy. Wow. So it's safe to say um, we don't just have rich folk. We we got some some wealthy Wealthy. people out there. Well, this this is a cross platform. Go ahead and tell us your podcast again. Right. So my podcast. The basis of it, Black Millennials Invest, is to help millennials right now start building wealth by owning property, owning cash flowing property, owning properties that can save you through a recession, a pandemic, owning properties that can keep you having rents in your pocket and paying the mortgage and cash flowing you enough time so you can quit your job and start your business. Enough time so you can go travel the world and learn about your ancestry. So you can be a stay-at-home mom with no job and no husband. Like, I hate to say it, but mm-hmm. this is, we need practical solutions for practical problems. Yes. You know what I mean? We need people who've got two properties that they both bought for $150,000. Those are cheap properties. Mm-hmm. That's it. You can buy a property for six, $7,000. Some of y'all spend that on purses. Mm. Some of y'all spend it on shoes. I like to drink. I know what it's like in Cancun. I know what it's like in Trinidad. You're spending the dollars anyway. Yes. But we don't think that we can have property. We don't think that we can do the things that white people do. You know, we think we're successful if we're renting a luxury condo. Mm-hmm. You're broke. They're going to take it from you. When you die, you're not take, giving anything to your children. Right. That's it. And so my platform just really works to debunk some of the misconceptions about getting property. You don't have to have a 750 credit score. You don't have to, you know, 
live in your property all the time and be dealing with tenants and fighting people and you don't have to do any of that and it is definitely an achievable goal for many people if you can plan a trip to Ghana or you can plan a trip back home to Jamaica you can own a property wow it's as simple as that. Wow. And you're not talking to talk. You're walking the walk. Oh, you I, are a proud I property am a proud owner yourself. I'm a property owner at 26 years. I brought my property at 24. And I have three operating units. One of them is under construction. So, yes, I have the demolition and construction experience. You've actually seen the property. Oh, yes. You have seen, you know, the struggles. Yes, it comes. And you work for it. You That's know, right. you work for it. But I bet you one thing. It's mine and it's free. That's right. We call that the come up. The come up, okay? Mm -hmm. A plan. And it wasn't a get rich quick plan. It took me a year and a half to get that property. But if I, it's because I started, I started. Strategize, as you said. You That's know? the thing. You start. You gotta start. You gotta stop being on YouTube looking at people giving you irrelevant information <laughs> and talk to somebody who's mm -hmm. giving you resources for the free, for the knowledge drop and learn how to get it started. Yes, yes. Um, I would be remiss without mentioning Noble Drew Ali because he came back in 1913 mm -hmm. organizing, you know, a foundation for the uplifting of fallen humanity. One part he did was to teach the people about their ancestry. Mm -hmm. The other part he did was set out an economic plan. A mm -hmm. hundred years later, his people they're still within that strategy and they're still meeting some pitfalls, but that is always, you know, the, the, at the core of it is economic empowerment. Um, I, have another, I have another term for you. Consumer or producer? Both. Okay, we consume to produce. Okay, I, I don't believe in reinventing the wheel, you know, and this, you know, it ties in really to property as well because we consume by purchasing things for the property, right? And what that does now is it creates a market for other black businesses, right? So now I need to consume. I need to say I need paintbrushes. I need this, right? And then at my property now, I'm producing jobs. I'm producing career. I'm producing opportunities, right? I'm producing homes for someone else. And then I'm going to be having the opportunity to produce even greater because now I can actually create my passion. I can actually take time to think about my action steps before I take them. You know, when you're in survival mode, you can't think before you can't strategize. You have to act immediately. You have to respond to your, your surroundings. So we are both consumers and producers. And people like to uh, pigeonhole us into consumers and say, oh, you know, we just buy, 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 and we don't own anything. But the thing is, we own our intellectual property, and black people are some of the smartest people in this world. You know, I just, I'll come right out and say it, I think we're a superior species, but I just think that when we are tapped in to our opportunities to actually expand on our thoughts or open up our creative ideas or actually get those ideas out into the world, and we're not just focused on how to get the next meal on the, on the table, then we can actually be both producers and consumers. And that's why I say we are both already because we have very successful black people. The wheel has already been invented. We don't have to reinvent it. There are already black people who are producing 
tons of goods and services and things that we use and occupy and need all the time, and we don't even realize it. You know, I saw on Instagram the other day, somebody had a, a black-owned uh, uh, detergent company, right? Wow. You know, and they're, they're selling, you know, detergent on the shelves, right? At all the stores we know, you know, and you might go into the store and not recognize the brand, but there's a black man behind that producing things that we need. Wow. You know? Wow. And, and that's, and I've seen a lot of people become producers and have the opportunity then to bring it back to the ancestry, dig deeper into their ancestry, and then start to bring back the life of people that they, that have been since written out of history. You know, we're right here in Trenton, New Jersey. I'll tell folks that mm -hmm. I'm the biggest advocate for Trenton, and I really hate the narrative that white people have made about Trenton. And that, but you know, it's a it's a work in progress to uplift that that representation because it's cultural. It's not what's actually here at all. It is cultural, you know. And so, there are restaurants here, all owned by the same African family, Ulabalas. You know, and they have named their whole menu after their ancestry. Mm. You know, these are things that we think are small when we're doing them. But if you walk through West Philly, they got hundred-year-old pizza shops. Oh yeah. With, with all the Zigarellis and Donatellos and all, the, <laughs> and they're making history and making mm -hmm. money off their names, right? That's right. And that's why. And this is a little off topic, but that's why I always tell black people, especially American black people from slave lineage, to appreciate ghetto, air quote, I'm air quoting, mm -hmm. ghetto names, okay? Because if you have a slave master's last name, it is your duty to give your child a name that is true to who you are in this moment. You are history too. So if you want to name your child Shaquanisha Grayshawn Denise, you name her Shaquanisha Rachel and Denise because when they look at that Williams on the end, they're gonna say, oh, her name was S. Williams and she could be any color. No, let them know who you are in this day that you existed and you did whatever you did. If you did hair at the salon, mm -hmm. if you bought two houses and one was your grandmom's and then they took that one but you kept one, let your history be known, right? Yes. We don't ever write that stuff down. We feel embarrassed. We feel embarrassed. White people got us out here feeling embarrassed to exist. And it's got to stop. It starts with having the economic foundation, learning to produce from your craft because you've got financial freedom, exploring your ancestry, and then communicating what you've explored with others who are still in the survival mode. So it sounds like to me, before slavery, we had trade and commerce. During slavery, we were trade and commerce. After slavery, we had right back into trade and commerce, which reminds me to mention Tulsa, Oklahoma, which they called Black Wall Street. I'm quite sure you could appreciate that, you know? You got anything to say about that? I mean, I love the name. I love the, the name Black Wall Street because it really accurately represents our elegance, our tenacity. I wish the, the viewers the, or the listeners here could see this painting we have right in my house. My house is a historic heirloom built in 1904 and here we honor all the time the black bourgeois because we deserve. Those people worked hard for their freedom, for their businesses, for their right to property, for their right to bear arms. None of this has changed. We're still fighting for it today. We still like to wear nice stuff. 
We still like to overdo it. We still like to, you know, grandiose ourselves because we should, because we worked hard for it. And because we're steadily comparing ourselves to people who have had centuries worth of star over us, we still feel insecure about our accomplishments. And you know, part of building generational wealth is to instill that sense of pride again, you know? We always say Tulsa was destroyed, you know, and that's the that's the memory we hold of it. It's a painful memory that it was bombed and destroyed and we hold it over ourselves like a look what they did to mm -hmm. us. But the truth is we have so many more black Wall Streets today. We have so many more black businesses being passed down to black children. And we have so many black entrepreneurs. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the country, period. Wow. And they're doing it without funding. They're doing it with no money. No WBE? They're doing it with nothing. <laughs> okay. Okay? They're making businesses out of candy corn and snow. Okay? It's just, it's amazing what our people can accomplish. And yes, Black Wall Street was destroyed. Yes, Seneca Village in New York City was destroyed so that we could have Central Park. Those were bourgeoisie. Those were wealthy black people. But what's printed in the papers today was a Negro village. Got you thinking it looks like the project in the Bronx, which by the way, our people should never live in. The New York City Housing Authority has no business having our people mm. live in those places. And you know, we can get on that history a whole other time. <laughs> but you know, that's the narrative they write about us. And, and we don't want to focus on the fact that Black Wall Street was destroyed. We want to focus on the fact that it existed and it still exists. The same way you just said, pre-slavery, -pre we had trade. Uh, during slavery, we were the trade. Mm -hmm. Post-slavery, we still had trade. Yes. Amidst slavery, we had trade. Yes. People climbing in mailboxes trying to get out of the South. <laughs> this is true. You hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And now they Black Mail Courier Service chucked... <laughs> Mailing more black people to the north. Mm -hmm. We need to put some respect on their names. Put some respect on their name. Let's put some respect on your podcast. Tell them your podcast name again. Black Millennials Invest. Y'all come build the generational wealth. The knowledge is free. Okay? That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you are on the More You Know podcast brought to you by More Talk TV. And the more you know, the more you do. You're here with your host, Alfred Tardell. And... Ebony Harris is my esteemed guest here. Well, look, I'm ready to give you a hot seat topic. Are you Are you ready for this? <laughs> oh boy! All right. See. Well, let me just let me just cap off our initial conversation with this, and then I'm gonna give you the hot seat the hot seat topic. Mm -hmm. Jay Z once said, mm -hmm. in one of his rhymes, one of his raps, he said, "You have flash now, money." You have flash now, but time will will reveal money. Mm. Mm. I always like that quote, you know, because I remember growing up when I was younger and I would watch a lot of my peers. They would be flashing their money. I mean, listen, I, I'm guilty of it, too. I remember taking a bunch of wands and putting a hundred dollar bill over it, making it look like I had a whole lot of money. And you see even on the rap videos today, it is just cash, 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 you know. But um, I, 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 you have any, you have any thoughts about that quote before oh. I give you my hot seat topic? Do I? All right, go for it. <laughs> Do we have enough time? Like, oh yeah, yeah, we're making good. You know what? Yeah, first of all, I love this. People need to stop being impressed by the wrong things, okay? Because 
and I get this all the time. I am single, y'all. So I be dating, and this dating out here is ghetto, okay? And this is one of the primary topics I end up talking about. It's about what kind of money do you have? Do you have flashy money? Or do you have long money, longevity money? Money that withstands unemployment, money that withstands, um, you know, downturns in the market. What kind of money do you have? Do you have money that somebody can come get whenever you don't pay the bill? Or do you have money that is uh, sustainable and can be passed down and can be checked out when everything else has run dry or can be invested in another person's business as seed money? What kind of money do you really have? And the thing is, in our media culture, you have people out here thinking that it's better to have flashy money than it is to have long money. because. I would much rather a person come up to me and say, oh, we can't do that this week. My money is tied up. Your money is tied up in assets. Good. You shouldn't have no liquid cash to be out here throwing around on a Bentley. Mm -hmm. I mean, and if you do, go right ahead. You know, kudos to people like, you know, Money, uh, <laughs> money Mayweather. Right. You know what I'm saying? If he want to be flashy, and that's the things I say about black people wanting to still live luxurious lives. And I think that we should never be ashamed of that. If you've got your money in order, if your funds are in order, and your investments are sound, and you've got that long money, if that money is properly invested, and it can actually speak in a court, and it can actually change laws, and property ownership is what changes laws. Tax payments are what change laws. So as long as you've got those, you know, foundational things in order, flaunt your money. Hmm. Take that vacation. Do your thing. But don't be out here living in living in somebody's basement, you know, driving a Maybach, trying to put on this facade that that you are more successful than you are. That is that is we have to kill the honorableness of that. That our culture will uplift that so much, and it's poisonous. It's poisonous on a grand scale. Some say it's a sin to be poor, you know. And I, I like to think that if you've used good strategy and you've built um, a good wealth fund, you have a good stock and portfolio, that. To live luxurious is the reward, mm -hmm. you know. Exactly. And we talk about giving back, and usually, you know, you kind of need to have a good amount of wealth in order to kind of really give back as as an investor in your in your neighborhood. There are other ways to give back, but when but it comes, you know, I disagree. I disagree. Okay. I got to stop you there Go because for it. if you can manage small money, you can manage big money. If you cannot manage small money then you cannot manage big money. Broke is a mental concept, okay? Even if you make $8 an hour, you need to be adjusting your lifestyle so you live under your means. That's not what people do. They don't manage their money when they make $8 an hour. They don't think that that money is money. But the truth is, if you make $8 an hour, then your living expenses should be 40% of that, and then 10% of that should be going to your savings, and then 10% of that, and then maybe you don't have money for a pack of cigarettes. And then maybe you don't have money for a bottle of Henny. And maybe you don't have money for, you know, new sneakers. But, you, but you're managing small money. So then if somebody tomorrow talks to you about how you're managing your $8 an hour and says, wow, 
that's really advanced of you. Wow, why don't I just slide you over to this position making $20 an hour so you can teach other folks how to manage that $8 an hour. You've got to stay ready so you don't get ready. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Susie Orman, eat your heart out. We got Ebony Harrison here <laughs> putting down financial literacy for us, okay? Let me put her in the hot seat. Uh, let's do it. I'm All right. I'm warmed up. Okay. All right. Awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome. So here's my um, hot seat topic for you. Now, I might say, or I do say, I do say that our people have an inferiority complex and that it is not white supremacy that is affecting their, their mental condition or their economic condition. See why this is a hot seat subject. I think that I think I okay, let me preface this by saying language is an extremely important tool. And we discussed that earlier. We were offline having another totally different discussion, but we kept and landing back on the importance of language and how language changes the circumstance of the discussion. So when you have a different premise of the discussion, then you know you will come to a completely different conclusion because it might actually be a totally different conversation. Okay, and so when the, the thing I want to pick, pick at when it comes to language is the term inferiority complex. And I want to say that I would not name the mental state of the black community as a whole with an inferiority complex, I would name it as collective post-traumatic stress disorder. And collective post-traumatic stress disorder is going to inform a lot of the decisions that are made by different black people. And that's going to be different based on everyone and their coping mechanisms. And then it becomes a conversation about the other form of slavery that you mentioned before, which is mental. Okay, so now these actions that are really being fueled from post-traumatic stress disorder can go a number of ways. They can go into highly motivated, overworking, you know, with the Obama archetype, where you have to excel and exceed at absolutely everything. You have to dive into the books. You've got to get yourself out of here. You've got to do what you've got to do. You've got to straight A it all the way, Ivy League it all the way, right? Yes. It can turn into the hustle mindset. I got to get my dollar. I got to just do what I got to do. I don't care what they say. I'm just do how I do, stay low and get, get this money. I got my feed my family, right? Yes. It can turn into the you know, strategic balance lifestyle, where there's a lot of, I think, self-hatred. And that's gonna be what you see the most, in my opinion, where you've got people trying to mimic the balanced lifestyle they see in white people. Mm-hmm. Where they're trying to say, okay, well, I'll just get a job here, and I'll just make some investments here, and we'll mm-hmm. try and do these things, and that is where I say, it absolutely is white supremacy keeping them down. Because even if they were to try, and this is why I say people have to stop following this white model of building generational wealth and do it the way that makes sense for black people. And what they're gonna see is that 
There are way too many white structures in place in this country to prohibit you from building generational wealth in the balanced structure that they have already established. So you're not gonna find the same ease of access if you just go to school and go get a job and then try and buy a property and then go ahead and build your family and then do your things and move to the suburbs and take it. You can do it. We've seen it done. It's not gonna feel the same. By the time you get there, you're gonna be so bitter and angry at how many times the appraiser gave you bullshit. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, of course you okay. <laughs> and how many times and how many times the mortgage people denied you for no reason you got a 730 credit score you can't figure out why you're getting denied you get what i'm saying yes. you can't figure out why you're trying to go to a showing to buy a property and they're not answering the phone or they're not answering your email because they can see your name at the bottom you know there's there we sound black on the phone y'all if you leave a voicemail they know if you're black <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you're going to see so many structures. If you're working that job that you just, I'll just go to school and get a job. And you're working that job at that white institution. You're going to die earlier. Wow. So the model Stress, doesn't work. It does not work for us. So we need that old time model. We need the old time model. We need to build for ourselves. We need to be self-sustaining. We need to mm -hmm. live off our own things. That's it. We wow. can't, we can't do what they do, you know? And so... Yes, there is a lot of white supremacy. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Mm -hmm. We can't say, oh, these people have an inferiority complex, which I, I'm nixing that word entirely. But we can say these people have PTSD, period. Well, how did, how did they get PTSD? Oh, it's these businesses over here that, that are causing this PTSD. So what do these people think they're gonna get out of working for these folks? If these folks are the same cause of the PTSD of these people over here. So, Kanye said. Oh, we love Kanye. Yes, we do. <laughs> I'm probably going to quote this wrong. But he said, even if you own a Benz, mm -hmm. you just a nigga in a Benz. Oh, yeah. Something like that. How, how's it really go? How's it, yeah. Even if you drive a Benz, yeah. right? Old Kanye. Right, right. Old Kanye. Old Kanye. Old Kanye fan. But, you know. Our brother Kanye needs um, emotional support. Well, I think he got it, you know. Um, there's a lot of people who support him personally, mm -hmm. but they are certainly not appreciative as to, I think this goes back to what you said about the premise, you know. Mm -hmm. They how say it's not what you say, it's how you say it, you know. So I think exactly. that's what we kind of, a lot of people are kind of got a little upset about. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, he was absolutely right. You know, if, even if you get a Benz, to them, that's what you're gonna be. Mm -hmm. That does not at all mean that that is who you are. And that does not at all mean that you are limited to their belief about you. And that does not at all mean you shouldn't do it. So just because if you get five gold chains and you wear them around your neck, everybody at the mall is gonna be looking at you like you're crazy does not mean you should not do it. That is my, my honest opinion about it because the thing is, I'm a huge advocate for people going ahead and spending their money. Do I think they should do it at black institutions? Yes. But there are things we like. Arabic people only spend their money with Arabic institutions, but when they want a Birkin bag or if they want a Maserati, they're going to go get what they want. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should ever deprive ourselves of the luxuries that we want, but we should also primarily 90% of the time be sowing our seeds generationally in our communities and circulating our black dollar and owning our things. 
that's the premise that people are missing right now, I think. Yes. And, you know, once that is set up, and I think we start to see it a little in Atlanta, we start to see it a little in Dallas, we start to see it in some of these thriving black communities. However, we want to see it on a grander scale. We want to see all the businesses supporting black-owned businesses. If you want some expensive stuff to buy, buy it from Rihanna. She got everything. She got designer bags. She got, mm-hmm. <laughs> she, you know what I mean? And we need to start seeing more black designers branching out on their own and building their own following organically so that we can stop patronizing LVMH. LVMH is one of the biggest culprits, mm. period. And people don't even realize how much black culture booms their businesses. That's it. They own Hennessy. They own the liquor we drink. They own Louis Vuitton. They own Gucci. They own everything. I think I might be wrong about that, Gucci, but you get my point. They own so many luxury brands that black people are the promoters of that if we could just nip them in the bud, if if Beyonce, Jay-Z, Rihanna, and three other stars just decided to drop their own, like, cookie cutter smack repeat version mm-hmm. of those five luxury brands and we could stop all black people from buying those brands don't you know that all the asian people and all the arab people and all everybody who fiends on black culture would also stop patronizing those brands wow but we don't use our power in that way because what we lack as a people is strategy not money not buying power and they got us out here thinking we like money we don't we lack money. We don't lack money, but we lack strategy. So, you know, until until we can unify and say, like, let's all place our funds in this way and let's all, you know, use the different tools that we have to create our own ecosystem, it's not gonna happen. I think we're, we're starting to see more black businesses evolve, you know what I'm saying? And this wave of like buy black period, you know, people used to think of the buy black thing like, oh, it would be nice, I have some black-owned stuff, you know? But when we start talking about it on an everything level, like every single thing you buy, I'm talking from paper towels to toilet paper to everything, that's when we start to change the economy, you know? Not when you want to have a black t-shirt and some handmade earrings. And that's what's going to propel black people to start seeing the investment opportunities. There's black people who are sitting on their investment portfolios looking for stuff to invest in so that they don't have to ride the crazy wave of the American economy, but they don't have anything to invest in. They don't know. They don't know that there's black engineers out here trying to build steel. They don't know that there's black, um, you know, doctors out here trying to cure cancer, but they can't get any funding because all the funding is coming from big pharma. Can we get black people to make a, a venture fund for all the black chemists out here? Wow. Treat ourselves? The medical field is one of our biggest problems. You know what I'm saying? It's just, we need a full scale economy plan that all black people, no matter their economic bracket, can get involved in. Because everybody could have a role. Yes. But we need a unified voice to really put that forward, right? Your voice sounds your voice sounds marvelous, and I'm quite sure there are a lot of strong men and strong women who would certainly sit under your voice. I think the topic of self governance, self governance, and wealth building. I think we hit that on the nose. Um, self governance is about self control, self discipline, and doing for self. 
um, governing our own affairs. And this is all about wealth building. We need true wealth, you know. Go ahead and give us um, the thought or the word of the day and also tell us your podcast again as we begin to close out here. Perfect. So, you know, the one thing if we could take anything away from this is education, okay? Because everything has to come from one's own desire to learn more, right? And when we get into this cycle of having no hope or feeling, um, you know, uh, really defeated by the cycles of supremacy that we're suffering from, then we are crippled from making those steps towards finding podcasts like this, towards finding like-minded people, towards getting the information we need, towards taking the baby steps and solidifying the deal, finding the property, making the money, starting to, you know what I mean, really explore the ancestry, follow the plan, get get unified with some local groups, start, you know, really hearing people out, having conversations. All of that starts from one's own desire to learn. And if we're not having that own desire to learn, and we're not having uh, the guidance for each other and a willingness to have conversations and debunk when someone says, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a more, and the other person says, oh, I'm a, a Christian, I don't do that, or I'm, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I identify as a black American, I don't, I don't believe in that, you shouldn't say that. You know, having those open dialogues are what create opportunities for people to say, oh, well, what do you really know about? Well, let me tell me what, what are your side hustles or what are other things you do? And then we start to see that there is a black economy, but it comes from having conversations. And conversations only happen when you've got a desire to more, right? So you're within yourself saying, oh, well, the system is fucked, we're screwed, and you know what, all these black people, black people can't never get together. I'm a strong advocate for changing the narrative around what black people say to black people. That's not even what white people say to us. We already have to deal with what white people say to us, right? Yes. But what we say to each other is the stuff that really hurts. You know what I mean? We'd be ready to black on a white person. And then we can come home to our aunties and be like, y'all know see what this white person right? But it hurts more. You're going to be thinking about it at night if you're sitting down with your homies and you're like, yeah, I'm thinking about starting this business and all of them say, man, you ain't doing that. You ain't doing that's the one you want to stay up at night about. You're not staying up at night because somebody cut you off on the way to Walmart, caught you a nigger. That's okay. But when somebody close to you, the mm. conversations you're having in your homes with your cousins, with your friends, are not fruitful mm. towards generational wealth, towards the overall plan, towards knowing our ancestry, to, to, towards discovering the truth, that's when it breaks us down from the inside. You know, and then we lose that desire to know more. We lose that desire to to grow and be different from the people we know. We don't want to even learn more because then we, we don't want to hear that, oh, you think you know everything. You know, you think you better than us, you know? Yes. So it's a culture of owning up to wanting to know more, embracing the more that you find, building the generational wealth, and then having those conversations. Wow, wow. Ebony Harris, y'all, education. Knowledge is power. Tell us your podcast again. Black Millennials Invest. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, and online at blackmillennialsinvest.com. Y'all heard it here first on the More You Know podcast.
podcast. The more you know, the more you do. We'll be back to talk more. But for now, peace.